And on that note, we're going to get into the message today. And I'm actually beginning a new series this morning. It'll be for multiple weeks. And I'm calling the series Timeless Truth. Timeless Truth. And really much of this is going to come out of uh, the, the books in the Old Testament that are prophetic books. And I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, our, our Protestant Bible, there are 66 books that make up that Bible. There are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. The 39 books in our Protestant Bible that make up the Old Testament correlate precisely with the Hebrew Bible, which is referred to as the Tanakh. And that is broke down into essentially like three different sections. There's the Torah, which is the first five books of the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then there are what are called writings, which are like Proverbs and Psalms and things like that. And then there are uh, the prophetic books, which consist of, there are 12 minor prophets, and then there are five major prophet books, but five major prophets. And they just kind of, that's, that's you know, theological discussion. The Bible doesn't speak of it that way, but just based on contribution and things like that. But much of the books in the uh, prophetic writings, there's a common theme there. There's a common theme. It's interesting because they all take place over a period of about 400 years when they were written and when those prophets lived. And they're essentially, for the most part, speaking to Israel in the north or in the south, Judah. And then sometimes they were speaking to Gentile nations. Uh, Obviously, we know Jonah was one of those. But the messages are always very, very, it's interesting, they're very accurate and consistent with one another, even though certain things vary season by season. Here's the point of that. The message series is Timeless Truth because I want to help us to see that God's word endures through every generation. God's word endures through every era, right? There, we're in a time right now where it's kind of like kingdom versus culture. And culture is going one way. And culture is wanting us to believe a, a bunch of things about how the world works and the way we're to view the world Many hot topics, cultural hot topics of the day, like gender and race or marriage or uh, the sanctity of life. Many of these things that, frankly, God has already defined and spoken about, but culture is trying to kind of rewrite the narrative for us. And frankly, if we're being straightforward, that is actually working even in parts of the body of Christ in our nation today. And what we have to be is we have to be astute and aware of what the Word of God says. What is kingdom so that when we see culture going this way, we can recognize when we see it, that's not kingdom. And kingdom is going a different way. And then we stand on the truth of what the Word of God says. And we live by kingdom and not by culture. Does that make sense? And the the Word of God, look, it's, it's been around and God's Word has been bringing down 
the lies and fallacies of cultural thinking for thousands of years. So this is what I'm trying to say. If we're around in 50 years or 100 years, and the next cultural hot topic, like, I don't know, genome mapping and some of the things that are being talked about even now that are down the road, if some of that stuff pops up, all I know is that this thing, this truth right here is still going to be standing firm, standing strong, and it's going to be a guide to our path and directional to where God's people are supposed to move and go. We go with kingdom, not with culture. Amen? Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive in today, uh, and we're going to begin in the book of Joel. Joel. Joel is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, The dates of his writings cannot really precisely be identified because some of the books, they say, hey, in the time of this king or in the time of that king, and so you can narrow it down, right? Oh, there's specific events that they'll speak to. It's, it's not real clear with Joel. But Joel is speaking uh, to, the, to the people of Judah. And he's got a really important message about where they are culturally, where his, God's people have allowed culture to take them to, and what is God petitioning them to do about that. And I just wonder if sometimes, right, these kinds of messages aren't still speaking, in fact, I don't wonder, I know, are still speaking precisely to even where we're at today. Because the Word of God, when you read especially the prophetic books, what you'll see is there are contemporary applications, meaning there's something happening right now that this is directly related to and speaking to. But not only are there contemporary applications, there are eschatological applications, which means if you really kind of look, there's an arc being drawn towards the return of Christ and the end of days and the time whenever eternity ushers in. But in between that, contemporary application, eschatological application, guys, there are always principles and patterns that are always at work in our lives that if we will follow, we'll see the fruits of, but if we will reject, we'll experience the consequences of, right? And I'm just telling you that God has a way for us to live. And when we accept God's way and we live God's way, then there are blessings that come from that. There's a covering and a blessing that we live under from walking in obedience to God's ways, But at the same time, if we reject God's way and say, no, I'm going to go a different way, that is not casual or inconsequential. There are very much consequences that come to our lives if we reject God's way and choose to do it our own way or a different way. And those consequences, if walked out long enough, ultimately lead to great destruction in the life of a person. And the Bible makes that emphatically clear again and again. So let's read in Joel chapter 1. We'll just read, uh, we'll start out with the first four verses here. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel, Petuel, says, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So there's the multi-generational thing again. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. 
what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So here's our entry point. There is a locust invasion in the land, and they are decimating everything. And it's actually been a little bit progressive because you can see here from the reading we just had, there are four waves of locusts. Now, when they come, they come very fast and swift, but there's still a progression that we see here. Initially, there was a bunch of crops that were devastated and then more and then more, and now they're totally wiped out. This is the situation, okay? This is their current reality, is that 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 vibrancy, that fertility, that gushing land that they once knew, that, that's not what they're living under anymore. And this has come upon them. So the locusts are literal happening, but there's also a spiritual application there because what Joel is recognizing is he's recognizing that what God spoke to Moses is what's upon them. God said, if you walk in disobedience to me, there are all of these consequences and curses that will come. And one of those was locusts. They would come and devour their crops. They would decimate everything. And so Joel, what he's, what he's doing is he's looking at the times and he's discerning and interpreting that this, this is what's happening right now. Right? This is not coincidence that this is taking place. We, we, are, we are in a wayward path with God and we need to reset. Right? We need to recalibrate as a nation, as a people. And so the land is decimated. We know that the brooks are dried up. The water is not flowing plentifully from the streams. It says the tree has withered and the vine has gone dry. So all of these sources of fertility and of provision, which by the way, he says in there, my vine, my trees, my brooks, which always indicates that God owns it all and he's the source of our provision and he's letting them know that these things have dried up now, right? Things have come upon them and essentially what's happened is that they're, they're walking in disobedience away from God and rejecting God's ways have brought upon them now consequences. There, there's a hedge of protection that has been lifted. That's part of the blessing. When we walk in obedience to God, His promises are real to us, and we're under a blessing or covering of protection. But when we continue to walk away from God's path, then that hedge of protection is, is kind of lifted. And that, that, that's God allowing the consequences to come and happen that He said would come and happen. But listen to me, ultimately... What that's, uh, what that's meant to do is to drive us and bring us back to God. It's meant to bring us back to the place where we're recalibrated and realigned walking in his ways and in his path. And if we're being honest, every one of us at some point in time on, a, on just a life level have probably experienced this. Where we've, we've, where we've kind of went off path. We've sort of chosen to do something our way instead of God's way because it's more convenient or it's more comfortable or we're worried about ridicule or backlash. We could give a bunch of reasons, but nonetheless, when we do that, when it continues to happen long enough, 
because God is true to who he is and what he says, he's, okay, the hedge of protection, the covering is going to be lifted. And what that does is it now allows things to come and come against us in our lives that can bring great heartache and destruction that God was once protecting us from. And we've let, we, we've let ourselves into that place right, by going away from the path that God is telling us to go. So let's jump down to jump over here. Uh, to chapter 3. I'm just going to read verse 14. He makes a very interesting and powerful statement. He says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So there's two key points here I want to bring out. One is the day of the Lord The other is the valley of decision. And the day of the Lord, you'll see that all throughout Scripture. I think it's close to 20 times you see it in the Old Testament through eight different writers. And you see it in the New Testament many times. Sometimes it's called the day of visitation. Uh, Sometimes it's called the day of judgment. And it speaks to a contemporary event, but it also speaks to an eschatological event. So the great and awesome day of the Lord is when Christ returns. But it's also applicable in this, in this sense, guys, that the day of the Lord comes as a time of consequence and, and judgment when God's people refuse to return to him and continue to walk in sin, continue to walk in rebellion. Eventually, there is a point where that day of the Lord, so to speak, happens and the consequences are suffered. But ultimately, while there's time, those events can bring us back to God in the final return of Christ when he comes, the great and awesome day of the Lord. The time for deciding is over, right? But we have time before that. So you see this this day of the Lord, it's like a trigger point. It's like, all right, now this thing is rolled over and the consequence of waywardness is in motion. It's a release of something. And that, that judgment, if you will, is carried out. Sometimes God can bring plagues or he can bring things. Sometimes he allows the enemies of his people to come marching in and begin to wreak havoc on them instead of keeping them at bay or defeating them for his people. And that's kind of what the locusts represent. Now, I know that we sometimes struggle with this idea that God punishes. I know that that's a difficult theological thing to wrestle with, but the reality is is that God is merciful, but he is also just. We have to understand that. You know, this you may not win a bunch of people over with this kind of preaching, but I just got to tell you, you're not helping anybody if you're not talking about it either. God is merciful, but he is also just. And, and those things balance out in God's character and nature perfectly. They, they don't balance out well when we try to handle that, right? Think about it like this. Imagine a judge and somebody who's on trial, and they're, they're 100% guilty of a horrific crime. No question about it. Like No, dis- no dispute. They're guilty. Everybody knows they're guilty, and the judge is, is just like, yeah, you know what? 
I don't really care. I mean, you seem cool to me. I, you're, I'm just going to let you off. And this person gets out free when they've committed this horrible crime. Right? None of us would like that. We would say, that is unjust. That was unjust. There was a crime committed, and that needed to be dealt with. Well, let me explain. Sin must be dealt with. It must be addressed. But here's the beautiful thing about God, is that he has a solution, or what we would call in the Bible a propitiation, which means that when a son or daughter is covered by the blood of Christ, when God looks upon them, the, the previous guilt of their sin was there, but God can forgive us of our sin, not like the unjust judge that just throws it away. Here's why. Because the Bible says that when Jesus hung on the cross, he took the sin of us all upon himself, and God poured out his wrath on the Son. So because he took the wrath for our sin, it's been justified. Does that make sense? I'm covered by the blood, so my sin can be forgiven. I'm, I'm experiencing the mercy of God, but I am also justified because God has dealt with that sin. He didn't just let it go. He dealt with it by pouring out his wrath on his son, and it was settled, and it was nailed to the cross that very day. So God is merciful and he is just. So the day of the Lord is a trigger point when we continue to walk in waywardness and eventually the consequences catch up to us. And that great and awesome day of the Lord will occur when Jesus returns. But we're, we see this pattern play out even in our lives today where if we neglect obedience and we choose not to listen and obey what God's commands are, in any area of our life, then we're headed down a path where eventually the consequences would catch up to us as well. And those consequences are initially designed for God to use them to kind of bring us back to this place where we're in right standing and right walking with him again. And that's how he uses these things. The other part that I wanted to hit on in that verse is the valley of decision. The valley of decision. That speaks to this like wrestling, grappling, contemplating kind of moment. Now there are different parts of the Bible that speak about valleys that we go through. Psalms 23, probably the most famous, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. You anoint my head with oil, right? Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's talking about, I'm going through a valley right now, but you're with me, and these promises are enduring. This is a valley that could be described as a, it's a low point or a low moment that might be occurring from an attack of an enemy. It might be great grief and mourning uh, in our soul and agony, but it's, it's something where we're kind of going through this low place, but God is with us and his promises are, are keeping us going and his presence is keeping us going. The valley of decision is a little different. It's still a low point. It's still a valley. But this is the point 
This is describing a time when God is giving us the opportunity to turn back. He's creating this moment in this space. We see his mercy on display. We see his long-suffering on display. He's giving us time. He's giving us the opportunity to recalibrate, to come back. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near at the valley of decision. He's saying, it's, it's kind of like saying there's, there's still time until there's not time. <laughs> right? There's still time until there's not time. Until the consequences eventually catch up to us. And so I just want to show you, like, on a, if we were traveling on a road in a highway or a vehicle, we come to this place where it's like a diverge or a fork in the road, right? This would kind of be that point where we're going along, we're going along, maybe in a relationship, you know, we're dating and, and things are going really, really great. And we believe that God's plan for us is the best. And then all of a sudden, we, we kind of merge off and we begin, to, we begin to handle that relationship in a way that's maybe outside of God's ways. And now we've merged. I mean, we could talk about this in our business dealings. Things are going really great in my career, and now I've kind of maybe cheated or compromised on a few things. And so when we come to that place in that fork and we go a different direction than where God's going, we've merged off of his path. Now, it's important to understand that before we get to the merger, that there's always these moments of temptation. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the entertainment of that. Once we accept it and we act on it, it rolls over into sin, and now we've merged off. We've diverged off of the path, right? And so that valley of decision speaks to this place where it's like we've kind of went off course now. What are we going to do about that? God is trying to get their attention. The people of Israel, he's saying, you've, you've diverged. You've, you took the wrong road in the fork, and you headed down this place, and it's, now it's dry, it's desolate, and the locusts are here. right? And he's trying to get their attention. In fact, if we read in, verses, in verse 1 of chapter 2, here's what Joel is God saying to Joel, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Sound the alarm. <laughs> Blow the trumpet. It, it doesn't do any of us any good if nobody will blow the horn. <laughs> If nobody's going to sound the alarm and we're all just going to pretend like everything's okay and nothing is wrong, culture is going hard to the left with our kids and in our schools and with the way they're trying to tell us to think and be okay with things. And Am I losing my mind? Or please, God, will his people speak out about these things and help me know how to deal with it? Culture is going this way. If nobody blows the alarm, what does that help? And Joel, he said, Joel, blow the, blow the horn, sound the trumpet, get people's attention, wake them up, help them see like, what's, what's going on. 
Some of them are probably just ignorant to what's even happening, and they need to be woke up to see what's going on. Here's what's really powerful to me, convicting to me, is he says, start in my holy mountain, <laughs> in Zion. Well, I don't know if, this, if I need to tell you this, but what he's saying is, start with my own people. Well, he deals with the nations later that are outside of Israel. There, there's all that still to come. He says, well, deal with my people first. I mean, if my people aren't walking it out, how is the rest of the world going to walk it out? They're the light of the world. They're the ones that are supposed to lead the Gentiles to salvation and to know who God is. We got problems within. Let's start there. Let's wake up the people in my holy mountain. They are the light of the world. The spiritual foundation has eroded and the hedge has been lifted. Let's jump over to chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. He says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. So in this moment of their waywardness, he's obviously warned them not to continue on. But I love it here. He says, your God is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. There is great kindness in him. He relents from doing harm. God loves to be merciful to us. It pleases him. And if we're talking about that, the road signs, right? The first one was the fork in the road. Here's what this moment has now become. This is the caution sign. This is, hey, you better, better slow down <laughs> on where you're going. I'm trying to warn you what's ahead isn't good. Do you see the mercy on display? It's like, I love the, I'm so grateful that God is, is willing to be this way with us. He said, this is the caution sign, right? I'm, I'm just reminding you that I am great. I'm gracious. I'm, I'm kind. I'm, I'm long-suffering. Again, I think what he's saying is, is there, there's still time. There's still time. You've went astray. You've walked off path. But if you keep going, it's going to get worse. Come back because I'm gracious. I'm merciful. And I'm kind. And, and I can just tell you, folks, throughout my life and my years of walking with God, I'm so grateful for his mercy. Amen. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm grateful that he's just, too. Because you know what? His mercy is why I'm going to be in heaven. His justness is why there's no sin that's going to be there either when I get there. He's both, right? And he's throwing this, like, caution. You can't keep going. Now, here's what sometimes we do. And I say we because I, I, I know I do it, right? Caution sign is up. Let's call that the Holy Spirit convicting us. No, no, you don't want to go that way. That's not good for you, right? But we have this little thing in our house. I don't know if you do this, husbands and, and wives, right? Uh, for us, the alarm clock, it's, this is a big thing. 
So when Katie sets her alarm on her phone, it's the precise time and it's one thing. And when I set my alarm clock, it's like this, 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 you know, like 815 or 715, 720, 725. And, 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 and it goes off and snooze and it goes off again and snooze. And by like 10, 20 minutes into it, it's literally just going off like every minute. And she's like, stop, please. Would you just set it for one time? Amen. Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I can relate to that. You know what I'm like? <laughs> I'm like the guy when the caution flag goes up, and I'm like, I still got a little more time. <laughs> I, that one's yellow, and uh, I'm pretty sure it gets red before it gets really bad. There's probably a few more caution signs along the way. I don't know why this is. What do we have to really lose before we wake up? How bad does it really have to get, right? But here we see God's just like, I'm merciful. Come on, come back to me. Don't don't keep going. It's not good for you anymore. Jump over to verse 15 and 16. He says, Okay, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call an assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So now the stakes are up. If we were at the caution sign moment before, I would say now we're at the danger zone. Now it's like there's there's really not a lot of time. But once again, mercy. And by this point, if we're still walking this way, locusts have probably chewed up everything. I'm I'm heartsick. I'm depressed. I'm miserable in my sin. This is, everything's falling apart, trying to piece it back together. And there's this moment where we got to decide. It's a valley of decision. Does stubbornness kick in? Do we double down on our sin? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Uh Uh-uh. There's a moment of conviction, and then all of a sudden, it's this like that pride, that stubbornness. Uh Uh-uh. And we double down. This is, it's okay. It's okay for me. This isn't, nobody's going to tell me that this is wrong. Nobody's going to tell me living like this in this relationship is wrong. This is up to me. That's what culture wants you to think. (laughs) Culture wants you to think that it's only up to you to decide what's right. It's, It's up to you to figure out what's right for you. But kingdom says, no, there are ways that are right and there are ways that are wrong. And there are blessings and there are consequences for each. Again, we, we live by kingdom and not by culture. But sometimes there's that stubbornness moment. And then people, I've seen this. It's like they double down on their sin. And then it's like they just kicked it into overdrive. Wait, what, what are you doing? You're speeding up? No, slow down. What are you going faster for? There's devastation ahead. And they just double down on it instead of 
coming back. And Joel is saying, God's telling him, blow the trumpet in Zion and bring everybody. Call sacred assemblies. And, and this is so powerful to me, guys, because he's like, the, 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 the groom and the bride, get them out of the bed chambers, um, which is a big deal, by the way, if you don't know. And he's saying it's interrupting something, right? It's like, no, no, that, that needs to be held off. He's saying bring in the children and bring in the adults alike. Here's the point of this. This is the message for every strata of society. This is, this is everybody needs to hear this, right? And this is the lie, I think, sometimes that in the church that, that preachers believe is that if I preach about these kind of things, then people are going to leave, and then that drives everything. That's a lie. I've felt it. I've been tempted with it. Believe me. But the truth is, if we don't, people will suffer. People will suffer. I mean, yeah, there are messages that gather a crowd, and there's messages that thin them out. I get that. But at the end of the day, I'm not really accountable for how many people hung around in the church. I'm accountable for what I preach and, and what I teach and how I help people find their way in truth. And I'll make this, I, listen, we, I get it. We are all in different places. And some people are probably like, oh, man, he's talking to me. How did he know? He's got the balloon up again. And, 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 and here we go, right? And then you shoot it down. And then... But I mean this sincerely, is that wherever you are, maybe you are off here in this place, it's not going to do you any good to hide it and keep it to yourself and pretend it's not there. I want to meet you. We want to meet you where you are. We want to help you. We want to guide you. But we really don't want you to stay there. We don't. We want to help you get past that. But this is the other mistake that we sometimes make is the first way stubbornness looks is we double down and we dig in our heels and we ride it out. But the other side of that is, is that we're suffering under shame and condemnation and we won't let it out. We won't tell anybody about it. Well, the Bible says anything that remains in the darkness has power over you. But when it's brought out into the light with brothers and sisters who love you, then it can be walked out in the light and those things can be broken off of you. It amazes me how sometimes even sitting down with a brother or someone just face to face and they open up first about an area of struggle there may be healing that needs to get walked out but i'm telling you every time it's like the clutches and the claw comes off it immediately loses leverage and weight and control over a person as soon as there's a light that's able to be cast on it life has been interrupted joel's like we're not playing around guys like we can't just go on with our head in the sand it's not Hey, we're, the whole nation is wayward, and you know this is really, really bad. And uh, when you guys get done with your dinner parties tonight, and you know all of the things that you're doing, and all your hobbies are finished up, and all the stuff, that, let's, let's try to squeeze some time in, guys, to get together and address these things. I, it's just a picture, I think, that he's showing us. He's like, life is not—it's it's interrupted. 
It's not life as usual and normal right now. Guys, we, we need to come together, and as God's people, we need to wake up together, and we need to recognize that culture is going one way, but kingdom is going a different way. We are headed down culture too much. We need to get back to going down kingdom. And if we'll go there first, guess what? God will always use his vessels that are walking with him to introduce the restorative power of God and healing power of God to other people who are then in waywardness. Let's be the light of the world. We got to get the light on in us first, right? Wake up, church. Things are going on. And it's happening. I don't need to go through all the things with you, right? It's happening all over the place. It's, culture is, is taking even parts of the church, seemingly church, in a different direction where it's like things that were so foundational, seemingly to me so clear, have become what I call foolishly complex. How did we even get to that place, right? That's, that's the trail of logic. That's the, that's the way it continues to play out the more we go down the path of culture. How do you get to a place where people can somehow sophisticatedly argue that there are, I don't know, last time I saw 58 different genders? It's, and I think it's more than that now, right? But listen, listen, there are sophisticated arguments for that. And I'm just saying, like, you get from a place of, of pure foundation when culture continues to take people down where it becomes foolishly complex. That's why the truth needs to be heralded and held up. This is the beacon right here. This is our plumb line. It doesn't fit in. Everything adjusts to it. Ah. Thank you for that. Hallelujah. Might have lost a few people there, but yeah. So when the day of the Lord comes, when it happens, it's, it's, it's swift and it's sudden. There's time until there's not time. The Bible says when Jesus returns, the great and awesome day of the Lord, it'll be like a thief in the night. And then those who've accepted him are going to join him in eternity. And those who have rejected him, there's no more decision making. They're going to spend eternity separated from him in the lake of fire. It's just what the Bible says. And so if you're here today, and let's say maybe you're an unbeliever, right? You're, you're not really signed up for this whole Jesus thing yet, but like you're, you're, you're open. I just want to tell you something. This whole thing that eternity is in the balance this is why we get so passionate about this. If what I'm saying is true and what somebody does with Jesus determines where they spend eternity, heaven or hell, I just hope you can appreciate why the message is so urgent and so passionate because there's just so much at stake. But I feel the same way even about us who are a part of God's family if we are walking in waywardness. There's destruction ahead. Danger. It's not good. But praise God. Here's the final street sign I want to show you. Is that this is what his message is all about. No. <laughs> there it is. Merge. Come back. See, we might have forked off. 
we might have went through the caution and the danger sign. But while there's still time, there's still time. And you know that merger? I just, I just like imagine in your mind's eye, the blood of Jesus just pasted all over that right there. Because the only way we can come back and the only reason we can come back and be justified when we do is because the blood of Jesus can atone for whatever that wayward sin might have been in our lives. You see what Joel is saying? He's saying, come back. I love it. He's telling them, guys, the ship is sinking. It's going down. And you can ride it to the bottom of the ocean if you choose to. I can't make that choice for you. But at the same time that he is heralding that message, he's throwing out lifeboats. That's what God does. Just mercy. If you keep going, it's devastating. But I want you to come back. I want you to come home. And when you do, God is so good. There might be some things that happened that we have to go deal with relationally. But the Bible says is that God restores us to a place of righteousness. So whatever mistakes, I don't even fully understand this, but whatever mistakes and wayward walking and things that we've done, when we come back to God and we merge back onto the main interstate with him, it's like he can use all of that stuff to do something beautiful in our future. And we're back on that path. Listen to this in uh, chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord will be, this is after they repent what they can expect, right? So he's, this is the good news in the midst of the warning. He says, the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Just break it down. Brooks are going to open back up. The tree, it's going to flourish. The vine, fertility everywhere. But these are just, these are just practical things. Joy. struggling with depression, anxiety, fear. Joy, it's going to flow like a river. Peace, you're tormented in your mind. Night terrors at night. Chaos all around you. Pressure everywhere. Sometimes you can hardly breathe. Feels like something's on your chest. Peace collides with that. Kingdom collides with culture, and it levels it. Peace, where there was a storm, flow like a river. Wisdom, you're confused, you're deceived. I can't make heads or tails of anything anymore. I'm trying to lead my kids through these complicated things and I'm, 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 I'm lost. Wisdom flows plentifully from the kingdom when we're open to receive. You get what I'm saying? New wine, new oil, a new work for a new day. God is restoring what waywardness has destroyed. And he's bringing it back. And he's increasing it now. 
and it's flowing through their valleys. Everything is beginning to be vibrant again. This is the promise. God makes it clear. Go this way, this is what will happen. Go with me, this is what you can expect. And it's the whole point of when we're off. The Bible says that the goodness of God is what leads men to repentance. So you got to get the whole picture. You got to have the whole message. It's dangerous out there. Ultimately, your soul is at stake. But if you'll accept Jesus, if you'll embrace his path, gushing fertility. I think Jesus said it like this, I've come so that you would have life and have it abundantly, which means fertile, flourishing, just gushing everywhere we need it. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To merge back on even after we have been away. See, the righteousness of God, it demands justice on unrepentant sin, but it also demands blessing on repentant sin. That's why God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time because he carries things out in a way that only he knows how and everything is set in order. Joel 3.18, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk and the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of the acacias. Wow. So in this valley of decision, warning signs going off. Come back. It's not good that way. In this valley of decision, God will not force our choice. He will not prevent us from the mistakes if we choose to make them. But he stands there in that valley, ready to reveal himself as the restorer when we choose to come home. It's like he's just waving those flashers when we're coming back on the on-ramp of the merge. Welcome back. I'm glad you're home. Get on my path and experience everything that's beautiful that's still ahead. And if we really think about this, this plays in not only contemporarily in the days of Joel and the people of Israel. It plays in pattern in our lives throughout how we handle and deal with temptation and sin and culture in our lives versus kingdom. And it plays out eschatologically at the end. The, the biggest detour, really, that ever happened was when man sinned in the garden. He broke off of God's path right there. And for thousands of years, it was like a big caution and warning sign continuing to flash. And then Jesus comes along and he brings the merger lane back. And it's sitting there waiting for you and me anytime we're ready to get on it. So I want to ask you today, have you given your heart to Christ? Have you 
truly surrendered. Let's talk about your soul for a second, and let's talk about eternity. Have you truly surrendered your life to Jesus? Right? Godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. Like, man, I get it. I, I, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm born into this world a sinner, and I need grace. I need, I need a Savior. And I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus, make him Lord, not make him just a counselor and advisor when it's convenient. Like, this is the way it works, right? God says, um, he puts a, a covenant in front of us, and it's like a blank document. And he says, I want you to sign on the line, and then I'll fill it in. Because we don't come to God with negotiations, we don't come to Jesus and say, I need you to work this out. I need you to work that out. Okay, if I can keep this or I can keep that. Like, that's, that's not lordship. That's not lordship. We got to make him lord and savior. So he's savior, but he has to be lord. So have you invited Jesus into your heart and really laid your life down? Said, I'm all in. I believe you're the son of God. You suffered and died for me so that I could be saved. And God, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean and make me new. At the very moment, and only God sees into your heart, and you and God would know this, but at that very moment that we do, God floods in with his grace. He fills us with his spirit, and we're born again. That state of death spiritually that we were born into the world with is no more. That old man is dead. The new man is alive. And we are a new creation God's nature, his spirit, his life living on the inside of us. And the Holy Spirit becomes our guide to lead us, to direct us, but listen, also to convict us. Also to convict us. You know, we hear, hear people sometimes say about quench the spirit, quench the spirit, don't quench the spirit. Well, sometimes God's trying to do a work and we resist what he's trying to do and afraid of what it will look like, and we could say that would be quenching the Spirit, but I think probably the most common way of quenching the Spirit is telling the Spirit of conviction to be quiet. That's quenching. I think that's the most common way of quenching the Spirit. And so He'll lead you. He'll guide you. Wisdom will flow plentifully into your life, and God will lead you into the path everlasting. That he has for you. If you'd say, man, I don't know if I've ever done that. I don't know if I've ever made the decision to make Jesus Lord. Been in church my whole life, heard the stories, man, checked some of the boxes, but what you're talking about right now, I, I don't know if I know that. I don't know if the Spirit of God lives in me. In fact, I'm not even sure if I died today, I know I'd be in heaven. That's a question that can get settled. That's something that can be answered. You can live by revelation from God and not by culture or knowledge of this world. I want that for you really, really bad, but you got to want it for yourself.